uh, we usually try to look at issues that are fundamental. So let's try to let's try to advance that program. Um, there is a, a fundamental subject that comes out of the parshas we've been reading. That comes out of the first part of the book of Genesis, Brashes that we can, uh, <coughs> we need to actually explore. The reason this is current in my own thinking is that I happen to have um, very interesting correspondence with a, a Buddhist at the moment. And um, some questions that Buddhists ask about Judaism, Jewish Buddhists, uh, revolve around this particular issue, namely the, the detail of the mitzvahs, right? Why each mitzvah is the way it is, why we do the specific practices that we do. In other words, perhaps you could phrase it this way, why is it not good enough to be wise and good in general? Many Jews ask this question too, incidentally. Why is it not good enough to be a good person in general, whatever that means in humanitarian terms? Not, I'm not dealing with the question of why yeah, it's not good enough to be good in, on a humanitarian level, leaving out a divine or absolute source and obligate. I'm not talking about that, it's another, another problem. But this particular, this particular version of the problem is why do you need to do the specific actions that we do? Particularly the ones that are hard to understand in humanitarian terms, what we call the chukim. Right, I tell you, you have to sit in a sukkah, you have to take a lulav, you have to eat a certain amount of matzah at a certain time. Technical deeds have got to hang strings on your, on your garments, you've got to... Uh, yeah, obligations and prohibitions that we do. Why are those necessary? How do those advance the project or the program of being a good person, of reaching spiritual enlightenment, as the Easterns would say. And that's an important question, and many, since many Jews ask this question, let's try to, let's try to work on it. Oh, is that a, are we together? Is that good? Yes? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we have the, spe the specifics and the particularities that make up a Jewish um, program? Why is Torah study not enough? Why, isn't, why, is, why is character building in general not enough? Or perhaps in a broader level, why is it not enough to have the mitzvahs between man and man in general? Yeah. Why do you also need the mitzvahs that we call chukim, the things that, that are between man and God, and the things that are very hard to understand, that no natural intelligence or no modern natural intelligence would come up with? Right? Nobody would fathom that you couldn't wear wool and linen in your clothes together, or that you have to hang strings on your fringes on the, car, on the corners of your garments. So that's, not, that's not natural. In fact, it's a wonder that that could have ever been figured out. Abraham, Avram, have you know, figured these things out, you know, dis discovered these things, developed these things on his own. That's another problem. How did he do that? It also has to be answered. So there are many aspects to this question, but a fundamental question. To put it in this most extreme or perhaps aggressive form, one of the ways they ask this question is, why are we so petty? Sometimes a person, a Jew, from an Eastern training or Eastern background will say, does God really care if you, you know, does he really care if you, if you, you do this tiny action on Shabbat, you take a bone out of your fish, does he really care about that? Isn't it ridiculous to think of an absolute creator being concerned about whether you switch on a light or whether you make an almost, almost insignificant seeming action? Why would he be concerned about that? And if you think about it, this is a real question. You know, in, in Jewish terms, the details are, are almost endless. You know, if you look in the Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch, you'll see that the Shulchan Aruch determines in, 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 in halachic, in normative halachic practice, you'll see that it's laid down how you cut your fingernails. The order in which you cut your fingernails or the order in which you should not cut your fingernails. 
the order in which you put your shoes on, in which you tie your shoelaces, and it's a different order, by the way. You should put your right shoe on first and tie your left shoelace first. Now, what on earth has got that got to do with the broader issues of spirituality? You know, surely any Buddhist will tell you that the idea of spirituality is to, is to reach enlightenment, to reach a oneness with the universe, a consciousness that extends beyond yourself. You're talking about cosmic things. What is cutting your fingernails have to do with cosmic consciousness? I mean, for Pete's sake, pity's sake, heaven's sake, whatever you... It's an issue, it's an issue, it's an issue. It's a real issue. And it's more necessary than ever to talk about these things because in the modern world, things like mitzvahs, specifics of mitzvahs that we don't readily see the application or the effect of those mitzvahs, right, they sometimes seem less relevant than they should because people don't understand the depth behind these things. So let's try to, let's try to, to think this through. It's a vast subject, of course. I've already covered it in one discussion, but let's begin. It's a fundamental issue. I mean, again, there are different ways to look at it, of course. You have, to be, you have to be open in the first place. You know, there was an event once, interesting event that transpired in the Polish parliament. That's in the last century, uh, a long time ago, in the, in the, during the communist era, when the, you know, it happened to be that many members of the parliament at that time happened to be Jews. Yeah, Jews who had no, no connection, in fact, were negative about their Jewishness. But it so happened that the president, the prime minister at the time, was a, was a, was a, was a non-Jew, who was very respectful of religion and very respectful of Judaism. Interesting thing. And many of the Jews around him were not. And once an issue came up in, the, in debate, in the <coughs> parliamentary debate, about some issue that, that, that affected religion, the Jews, and the Jews began to ridicule it. The Jews began to ridicule the issue and say, and in order to demonstrate how petty and ridiculous they, they thought their own religion was, they started to quote things of halakhic significance in front of these non-Jews to show them that how petty and insignificant and completely irrelevant Judaism now is. And one of the things they brought up was the fact of how you tie your shoelaces, another one was how you cut your fingernails. And they were laughing about these things and showing how ridiculous and petty these things are. And the discussion came to abrupt end when the Prime Minister, this non-Jew, said to these Jews, he said, you know, I'm absolutely fascinated to see that there's a religion that can even extract meaning from cutting fingernails. That's absolutely amazing. I'm very impressed by that. That your spiritual system derives higher meaning and deeper significance from even the smallest things like how you tie your shoelaces. That's remarkable. See, it depends how you look at things. Depends how you look at things. And of course, each mitzvah needs to be looked at. One of the questions I received in this Buddhist <coughs> correspondence was, you know, why is it relevant anymore? Why do you have to sit in a, in a sukkah, for example? Why do you have to sit in a sukkah? You know why you have to sit in a sukkah? You know, people who think that mitzvahs are no longer... No longer relevant. You have to go out of your house and sit in a sukkah. You know, what is that? What's the relevance of that? You know, if you think about it for a moment, anybody who knows anything about it, take any mitzvah, but take that for example, anyone knows anything about that mitzvah, can't help understanding, can't help noticing that if it ever was relevant, it's today. You know, one of the basic ideas of living in the sukkah is to, is to renounce the protection of your home, to go out into an environment where you don't feel secure because there's a thick concrete roof, you know, your mansion, your castle surrounds you and protects you. If that's less relevant today than it ever was, surely in the more materialistic and the more technological and the more accomplished the physical environment around you becomes, surely the message of going out into the flimsy structure where the roof is transparent and you see that, there's, yeah, that the real protection you're under, you remind yourself that the protection that you live under is something entirely different than the concrete and, and, and steel structure that you, that you build, that's less relevant today than it ever was. If there ever was a time in human history that the message is relevant, that you really need... Uh, I, I, on the contrary, I would say in previous ages, when you lived in more flimsy accommodation, 
you might have questioned why you need to go out to live in a sukkah that probably leaks just a bit more than your house does, you know, if that was the kind of house you live in. But today, if you live in a mansion with technological, you know, uh, wonders of, 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 of convenience and protection and security, right? If there ever was a time in history where it's more relevant to go out into something that's natural, surely this is it. So each mitzvah needs to be understood in terms of, of what it teaches and what it is. But let's look at the problem, the issue, in a much more global perspective and see from a more global perspective, and let's see if we can try to try to fathom this idea and see how uniquely central it is to Jewish thinking. Let's begin with, uh, <coughs> with the following. Let's, let's try to access it from this perspective. I try perhaps to show one or two different perspectives on this issue to bring out its, 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 its meaning and its flavor. But let's perhaps try to access it like this. You know, there's a basic question that can be asked about the pathway <coughs> of Abraham in the world. Avram Avinu, when he began this project that we now know as, as what we are, as Torah and, and Judaism, that, that, that unique view and teaching that brought the world what, what we represent, there's a fundamental question that can be asked. In fact, this is um, also a special meaning for me because only very recently uh, my personal teacher was here and someone asked him this question and, and because we've been discussing Buddhism and, and its relevance to, to Jews and exactly what is allowed and what is not allowed, so he gave a, full, a fuller discussion on this particular point. Let me try to convey to you what he said. <coughs> someone asked him the following question. And now focus with me because it was a demanding subject. Someone asked him this. You know, we, we, our teaching is that Avraham... Avinu began the process. He was an absolutely radical, iconoclastic individual. He broke the idols of his father and of his society. He stood on one side, the whole world stood on another side. He was ready. He was so committed to his understanding of reality. He was ready to be thrown into a furnace for it. In fact, he was. Nimrod threw, threw him into a fire for it. He emerged only, only saved miraculously. He was completely and utterly radical. There was nothing, no, no, no one before him, no one after him who had that power of initiative. Now, you have to understand this. He was a he was a child living in a world that was unified in its opinion. It wasn't like today. Today there are certain currents of thinking in Western society, let's say, but there's their dissensions, their minority views. Their, he lived in a unified world. He lived in a world where there was nothing else. There was one unified ideology under the king called Nimrod. Right? There was, before there was a split in the, between the West and the Far East in, in the world in general in ideological thinking. There was one united humanity and they all had one philosophy and that philosophy was that God is irrelevant. Not that he doesn't exist. <coughs> but he's irrelevant. Yes, they, they built a tower, and they, they wanted to go up in that tower. The, the intention was to rise in that tower, they were going, whatever tower means. Some edifice, some structure, some project, some program that would enable them to reach the source of creation <coughs> and tear it away from its, from its creator and run the world themselves. That was their philosophy. Not that they were in charge. Exactly what name is given to this kind of philosophy and what is it? Idolatrous? Is it not? We're not going to go into that now. And he perceived that it was completely wrong and radically took a stance against that, right? At the cost of his life, if necessary. You know, he was only three years old at the time. You know that? He had his first major insight when he was three years old. And then he had a, a greater level of insight when he was 48 years old. And when he was 75, he reached a prophetic level where Hashem actually, God actually spoke to him. But even as a child, you know the famous story, he broke his father's idols. You know, you must know the story. You, you, you hardly need to be in Cheder for one day. You'll know the story. He broke his father's idols and he left one standing and he put the hammer 
that he had used to smash the idols in the hand of the biggest idol. When his father came in, he said, what's going on? He said, don't look at me, he did it. Pointing to the idol that had the hammer in his hand. His father said, don't be an idiot, you know he could never do it. It's only stone. So he said, so why do you worship him? Why do you attribute power to this being or regard him as an emanation, a reflection of a certain power, when you yourself ready to acknowledge that he's a creation of your own hands? And by arguments more sophisticated, he was able to demonstrate to many people in his generation the falsehood of their, of their beliefs. He didn't do it incidentally by coming to an, a recognition of the truth. He did it by breaking down, by re-recognizing, just like we study in Gemara. When we study Talmud, we don't stop with the right idea. We stop with what's called a Havamin, a wrong idea. And by deconstruction of the wrong idea, we come to an understanding of the truth. That's what he did. He was given, he, he, he was an idolater like the people around him. That's what we say in every Pesach Seder, right? He, he was a, came from a family of idolaters. He was brought out like them. He had examined every idolatry in the world. And by perceiving their falsehood and what was wrong with them, from that, from that he constructed and derived the notion of the truth. That's who he was. So that's the picture we have of him. And he founded the system that became Torah. There was nobody like him. Not completely radical in his, in his vision. Now, how is this phrased, incidentally, in the secular documentation? If you look in any history book, in any history book, Jewish or non-Jewish, they'll tell you that Abraham was the great father of monotheism. You know that? You recognize that? He brought monotheism to the world. He taught that there's only one God. It's an idolatrous universe. He taught that there's only one God. There are fundamental questions here. Let, let's, try to, let's try to approach them. First of all, what was so radical about Abraham when the knowledge of one God was widespread in the world? Let, let's get that clear. First of all, how can we see that best? First of all, perhaps the clearest way to see it is during his generation, there was already an academy, already a yeshiva, called, known as the yeshiva of Shem Aver. Shem and Aver ran a yeshiva. Shem was no less than the son of Noah. Nobody had forgotten about God's existence. Noah's son still walked the earth. <coughs> you know, you need to look at a chart of Jewish history and see the timelines of how those people lived. You know, Adam lived for 930 years. You know when the flood took place? The flood took place in 1648. 1,648 years after the creation of the world. By the year 2000, 2000 after 2,000 years after the, the world had been created, when Abraham was 48 years old, okay, at that time Noah was still alive. <coughs> Noah was still alive. <coughs> you have to understand this. This means that Abraham, who <coughs> was born after the flood, met Noah. Yes, he met Noah. Noah had met Mr. Shalach, Methuselah, who had met Adam. You're talking about, you're talking three or four generations from the, from the first person who ever walked the earth. Who had forgotten? Again, let's just get this vision clear. Yes, it's not like, people have this vision, Abraham came onto the scene in a completely, um, in a devastated world, you know, in, a, in a world where there's no, no knowledge of spirituality, no one remembered, no one knew that God had ever existed, a nation of pagans and idolaters, and he fathomed this idea for himself. What are you talking about? He knew, he knew, he, he, there was a yeshiva called yeshiva Shem Ba'eva, Shem was busy teaching Torah. Shem taught Torah. It was completely acceptable Torah. Yaakov went to, went to learn there. Yaakov, you know, Avram's grandson, went to learn there for 14 years. Right? When Rivka had a question about a difficult pregnancy, she went to ask Shame, who was, who was a living prophet, who was the Rosh Yeshiva of this Yeshiva. Yeah? They were teaching Torah. They were teaching Hashem's Torah at that time. What was great about Avram? What did he figure out that they didn't know already? First of all, yeah, he knew monotheism. To say that he brought monotheism to the world is nonsense. He didn't bring it to the world. Everybody knew that there was one God. The argument was whether he's relevant or not. Whether he interacts with the world. Whether intermediaries are, intermediaries are active and have some power. Those were the discussions and the arguments. Nobody forgot that there was a creator. The philosophy was, Azal Hashem that God has left the world. He doesn't interact with us. He doesn't care what we're doing. We can take control. We can push him away. All those philosophies. 
But monotheism, that there is one ultimate God, the idolaters used to call him Elokai de Elok- that's what they used to call him, the God of all gods. They knew that he was there. They were just interested in him, that's all. They were interested in the intermediaries, the ones who deliver the goods. We've discussed this under the subject of idolatry. So first of all, they knew that there was they knew they knew about one God. Secondly, nobody had to look very far. In Abraham's generation, do you know that he lived for fifty eight years during the life of Noah? Do you know that that means that means Abraham was fifty fifty eight years old when Noah died? It's easy to remember because Noah is fifty eight. Nun and Chet is fifty eight, right? You have to be if you don't remember that, then there's no hope for you. So, for 58, the first 58 years of his life, his life overlapped with the life of Noah. And Noah's son was still alive, Shem. And they had met someone who had met someone who knew Adam. Do you know what that means? It means like meeting somebody who could tell you that his grandfather told him that he knew Adam, personally. Who spoke to God face to face. Prophecy was alive and well. Shem was a prophet. And that means a direct connection with the source. Who on earth had forgotten about, about one creator. And therefore the question we have to ask is, what was fundamental about what he, about what he taught and what he discovered? Secondly, and secondly, we credit him with being the originator of Torah. You know, it says in the Midrashim, for example, Abraham figured out the Torah, he calculated, he, he, he fathomed, intuited the nature of the Torah, right? And he brought it down to the world. Right down to all its details, he even figured out the details and nuances of the rabbinic laws. And he kept those laws. <clears throat> the only thing he didn't keep was Circumcision, Bruce Miller, because he wanted to wait until he was commanded, and then he did it. Huh? Which puts it all together, sums it all up. What's the numerical equivalent of the word bris? 612, right? Which means that in this mitzvah, all the others are contained. You have to understand why that is. At this time, we can talk about that too. So, He brought this to the world. He fathomed it. He figured it out. <coughs> the question to ask is, why is he given credit for that? Shem and Eve were running Yeshiva teaching the same material. It would seem. That was a teaching Torah. So what, what's the credit? What did he bring that they didn't bring to the world? Do, do you hear the question? Okay. Secondly, 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 if he figured out Torah and he was the great originator of Torah, that, and we hark back, we go back to him, then why when Yaakov Avinu was about, when Jacob was about to leave the land of Israel and go and live in Laban's house, <coughs> he stopped off for 14 years to learn Torah in the, in the yeshiva of Shem and Eber. <coughs> what was wrong with learning Torah from Avram and Yitzchak? His father Yitzchak had received the entire Torah, the Gemara says so, the, the Torah actually says so. He received the whole Torah, all the wisdom and all the knowledge of Abraham. In fact, you know we have a tradition that some of his wisdom, up to a certain point in his conclusions, he sent to the Far East. Do you know that? We have a deep tradition that Far Eastern religion in general stems from seeds of wisdom that Abraham sent to the East. In fact, it's, um, it's interesting, the, the source is, uh, not to go into the details, but the basic source is the fact that it says that Avram gave all he had to Yitzchak, and right after that it says that he sent sons that he had by a woman called Keturah, who was actually Hagar, he sent them to the East with gifts. The obvious question is, if it just said he gave everything he had away to Yitzchak, what gifts did he have left to give to the children that he sent to the East? And the answer is spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom is a thing you can give even after you've given everything away. Just like a candle can light many candles, doesn't lose any of its glow. Yes, you can give all you have and still keep giving if it's in, in terms of spirituality. And therefore he gave all he had to Yitzhak in every sense. And he gave also, yeah, no contradiction to that, he gave the seeds of spiritual wisdom. In fact, it's written in sources like Ripsodok, for example, exactly what he taught them. He sent them with certain fragments of divine names, certain facets of the names, certain, not the side that we relate to, but the other, what's called the other side of those names, so I'm not going to go into the details now, he sent them to the east, 
And these people carried the seeds of Eastern wisdom. Actually, technically what they carried was the work that he had done to elucidate Torah, stopping just short of his conclusions. Right? The conclusions that unify things, he left to them to, to them to work out. But he sent these gifts to the East. And these perceptions, these fragments of divine names and divine wisdom that he sent to the East became the foundation of certain trends of thought in, in Eastern thinking, which is generally much more spiritual than the technological, empirical, scientific, Western way of thinking. Right? And that is what became certain of the, the more mystical or deeper uh, traditions that the East has. So, so Yitzchak received these gifts of Torah, received the gift of Torah, and yet when Yaakov came to study Torah, and he, he needed to have an experience of Torah study before he went to live in the house of Lavan, he spent 14 years, and we know he never slept there, right? he never slept, for 14 years he didn't sleep, and he went to learn Torah. The question is like this, first of all, why did he have to learn Torah there? Until then, it was good enough to learn Torah from his father and from his grandfather, right? the greatest people alive. Why now suddenly does he have to spend four years? Because he's going to live in Lavan's house, he now needs 14 years in that yeshiva, what is wrong with his yeshiva? And furthermore, why did he not sleep for 14 years? You know, where he learned by his father, doesn't say he never slept. You know, the tradition is, you know how we know this, because when it says he was traveling from the yeshiva of Shemalev to Lavan's house, it says he lay down to sleep. So the Mephoshim, they were their super conscious ears, they hear, he lay down to sleep, means that was unusual, until then he had not. So the previous 14 years that he was learning Torah, he learned uh, an incredible masmid, as Rosh Shapiro said, it was a yeshiva without a dormitory. It's a yeshiva without a dormitory, yeshiva Shemalev, there's no dormitory, but he didn't sleep. He didn't sleep. Doesn't mean he never closed his eyes. Yeah, no, closed his eyes, but he put his head down on the shtender. And then had a, a nap, perhaps, for a few seconds, and he, he continued. You can still see people today in the certain corners of the yeshiva world who do that or try to do that. Why is it that he undertook that sort of Torah study for those 14 years and didn't sleep? There's no mention of the fact that beforehand, when he learned Torah in the, in the tent of his father and grandfather, that there's no indication that he learned in that fashion without sleeping. Why not? Why not? What's the difference? That's a mystery. The third question to ask is, the third question to ask is the, the one we mentioned before. When Rivka had a difficult pregnancy, she was pregnant, when she went past a house of spirituality, right, of positive spiritual manifestation, she felt the pregnancy respond. The child, as she thought, tried to get out, as it were. When she went past a house of idolatry, the negative side, of the, the dark side of spirituality, the child again tried to get out. She didn't know she had twins. She didn't know there were these yeah, antinomial... Uh, this duality within her womb, she thought she had a child and she couldn't ca calculate what was going on. Why is this child expressing, as it were, an affinity for the positive side spiritually and also an affinity for the negative side spiritually? What does that mean? In order to get elucidation of a situation, she went to ask Shem, a great prophet. She went to the Yeshiva and Shem told her, he said to you, carrying twins, one is tending in this direction, one is tending in that direction, that's how she resolved the issue. The question is, why didn't she ask her father-in-law? Why did she ask, why did she ask her father-in-law? Yes. Yeah, she was married. She was married to, to Yitzhak. Avram Avinu was alive. He was the greatest man on earth. Why should I ask shame? Yeah. <clears throat> and one more question we can ask, a fourth question also, also not another way of accessing this same subject. And that is this. When the generation that built the tower, that the, who, whose aim was to wrest control of the world away from Hashem, so they built this edifice, whatever it was, it's not to, uh, as to literally as a, as a city and a tower only. It's much more than that. Iru Migdal, the deeper sources say that Iru Migdal, meaning a city and a tower, represents the dark side of Jerusalem and the temple. Iru Migdal, yes, 
deeply always means Ir means Yerushalayim. The city and Migdal always means the Beis HaMikdash. Plenty of indications of that, like you see in Shirashirim, other places, is the, the Beis HaMikdash. The temple is called the Tower, the Migdal. These people were building a city and a tower, meaning the dark variant, the dark side, <coughs> the side that will bring you, just like the Yerushalayim and the Beis HaMikdash brings you to the center of Kedusha, they were building that which brings you to the center of co- spiritual contamination, right? So that they could, not just like you have to understand that the polarity here, Yerushalayim and the Beis HaMikdash bring you to connection with Hashem, in complete self-negation where you connect to the source. And that city and tower they were building bring you to connection with the dark side, detachment from the genuine source, in, 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 in terms of self-assertion and, and the opposite of, of the ego negation that is, that is that's required for the world of Kedusha. But that's what they were building. <coughs> These people were there, <coughs> nefarious aim, to take charge of the world and to bring it down into their own service and recreate it in their image, they were stopped or obstructed or threatened or offended by Abraham. Because Abraham had been stood against them and he taught that you're all wrong. You, 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 your whole philosophy, this whole culture is totally wrong. He stood against them and they were so incensed and inflamed and threatened by this that they tried to kill him. The reason they threw him into the furnace was because of his violent opposition, his, his um, extreme opposition to this negative spiritual program that they had. And they would do anything to to get rid of him, and they decided to kill him. The only reason they didn't kill him is because they couldn't. They threw him into the fire, and he came out alive. In fact, what they then said was, the Gemara says, they then said, look, we tried to kill him. He's anathema to our, to our system. We can't allow him to be alive. But we haven't managed to kill him. So what do we do? They said like this. Fortunately, he's infertile. Avram Avinu was 100 years old. right? He had no children. Sarah, his wife, was barren. The Gemara says not only it's ain't love blood. It says in the Torah she had no child. The Gemara says ain't love base blood. She had no womb. She couldn't have a child. She was completely infertile. Not only was she much too old, but she could not possibly bear a child. She had no womb. Right? The child was a real <coughs> explicit miracle when he was born. So they said, look, this old couple <coughs> completely sterile. So let them oppose us philosophically. But when they die, there'll be no. Yeah, that'll be the end of the problem. Preda zua karahi. That's what they said. <coughs> this mule <coughs> is sterile. That's how I referred, referred to Avram Avinu. This mule is a sterile animal. <coughs> Therefore, when he dies, he and his wife pass on, there will be no one to continue this philosophy that he teaches in the world about, about God and his involvement in the world and what he teaches, and therefore they just ignored him. But you see that they were prepared to do anything necessary to kill him. Why? Because he taught a philosophy opposed to theirs. The question we have to ask is, <coughs> why were they not offended by Shem Ever? Shem and Ever ran this yeshiva teaching Torah, right? Torah that uh, ostensibly was completely opposed to their values. Why did they not try to kill them? Do, do you know the question? There's no record anywhere <coughs> that, that that teaching of Torah that Shem and Ever represented was in any way offensive to this generation that was so set against it. Why? Why were they, did you hear the question? Why did they go to all ends to kill Avram who opposed them, <coughs> but they made no move to kill <coughs> or to, uh, <coughs> to terminate the activities of the Yeshiva of Shembeu? <coughs> These are the questions. Let's try to develop an insight into this issue, which I hope you'll see is absolutely fundamental to understanding what is actually quite humiliating how fundamental it is and we don't realize. Abraham, Avram Avinu did not bring Torah to the world. He didn't bring Torah to the world. He didn't bring knowledge of God to the world, monotheism. That's not what he brought. What he brought to the world was the fact that that transcendent world, which, which is called Torah, yes, that which Hashem is, is connected to the world. 
What he brought to the world, to put it most bluntly, was the concept of mitzvahs. What he brought to the world <coughs> was the concept that Torah expresses itself in action. Again, his radical idea, he's completely radical. If there was an iconoclastic idea, if there was a completely radical idea that he brought to the world, it's not that God exists and that he has spirit, consists of spiritual wisdom and that there are spiritual teachings. They didn't need Avram for that. Shem Ava were teaching that message. What he brought to the world was the fact that that incredible wisdom <coughs> that surpasses, that transcends the world, has to be expressed in your fingers and toes. <coughs> Incidentally, can you see why Bris Miller's circumcision <coughs> is the most potent expression of this idea? <coughs> because <coughs> the Bris, the circumcision, <coughs> represents <coughs> a mitzvah stamped <coughs> in that area of human activity which is the most earthy. Again, if there's a radical idea about Torah, it is that, that sanctity that transcends the world. That which is completely beyond human <coughs> consciousness in its root has to be expressed literally on your toners. But the deepest expression of it, perhaps, is this mitzvah of circumcision, which is taking the most potentially... <coughs> that mitzvah, that, that area, that, that most potently brings people down into the world of the animal and the earthy. Right? Judaism teaches that's what has to be sanctified, and in that mitzvah, perhaps more deeply than any other, all, all others are contained. Inasmuch as mitzvahs represent <coughs> physical things <coughs> that have to express spirituality, that mitzvah perhaps says it all. Incidentally, you know, if you look at the mitzvahs, you'll notice that virtually all of them are physical actions. That itself is striking. If you tell that to a Buddhist, yes, or somebody who's, whose main engagement is meditational, that's a remarkable thing. What kind of spiritual system is it that's expressed in physical action? Do you know how many of the mitzvahs are done with a mind? Only? Do you know how many? Very, very few. You can probably count them on one hand. Things like love of God, avas Hashem, yiras Hashem. Certain things that are mainly in the heart and mind. <coughs> the duties of the heart, duties of the mind. Even those have to be expressed in action. But virtually all the mitzvahs. Virtually all the mitzvahs are something you have to eat, or hold, or sit in, <coughs> yeah, or, or, or cut. <clears throat> or, or, or do it as a physical action. <clears throat> it's a remarkable thing. Isn't that paradoxical? You're reaching up into the highest world, that world which transcends ph the physical entirely. And how do you express that? How do you express it? In your fingers and toes, <clears throat> right, in physical actions. Virtually all of the 613 mitzvahs are physical actions. Or prohibitions yeah, not to do certain physical actions. <clears throat> Why? Why? That is what he contributed to the world. He didn't bring to the world the knowledge of a spiritual system, the knowledge of spirituality. That was, that was, the world was redolent, was rich with that knowledge. Right? Shemba Eber were teaching that very actively. What he brought to the world was the idea that that spirituality has to be brought down and expressed in every part of the body, which sanctifies every part of the world. Let's try to study this a little bit more deeply and see how far it goes. You know, the word Abraham, the word Abraham adds up to 248. Abraham adds up to 248. You know how many limbs and organs there are on the body? 248. His name means the fact that every part of the body, not the mind, <coughs> has to be engaged in Torah. In fact, the verse says, Ele told us Hashemayim Ele told These are the generations of the creation of heaven and earth. Behi bar'am. In their being created. Behi bar'am. Right? So that has many meanings that word. But one of the meanings of that word is Behibaram, Be'avraham. If you rearrange the letters of Behibaram, it spells Be'avraham, which means the world was created in and for Avra. Or put another way, for the 248 parts of the body that will express Kedusha in the world. <coughs> that, that's, he was the one who represents bringing Torah down into practical action.
On the contrary, it's not that a mitzvah is petty and small. That's exactly what Torah is. That it seeks to express itself in the smallest detail of physical reality. Invests every detail of the physical world. Invests every nuance, every flicker of a human movement. With a kedusha, a sanctity that comes from, from beyond the world. That's what he represents. In fact, the, one of the sources, you can see it anyway, but there are no shortage of sources for this, but I'll give you one. <coughs> it says, Boruch Avram lekeil Elyon. Avram Avinu is blessed, lekeil Elyon, to the highest God. Kael Elyon, the God who is above. Above. Koine Shamayim The one who acquires heaven and earth. Right? So, on one level, it sounds a poetic sort of a statement. Avram Avinu is blessed, and he's connected to Kael Elyon, Hashem who is above the world, who owns the whole world. The Gemara analyzes it like this. Lekel Elyon, that means the one who is above the world. Elyon means above the natural world. Elyon means above the natural world. If you want something to remember it by, since we're between Hanukkah and Asara Bateves, Elyon spells Al-Yavan, above Greece. You know what Greece is? Yavan, Greece, is the philosophy that the world is what we see and experience. That our scientific access, scientific, yes, the empirical scientific knowledge of the world, and combined with philosophical investigation, that's the real knowledge. Not the transcendent wisdom that is Torah. That's Yavon. El Yoin means above Yavon, right? Above the world. Above the world of human experience and human knowledge. That's who, that's who God is. And then what is he? Kenesh Avram Avinu is the one who, the way it's put in the Medrash is Asher Hikna, that means he acquired the earth for Hashem. He acquired heaven and earth for Hashem. How did he acquire? What do you, what do you mean he acquired the earth? It means that by putting the spiritual your knowledge, spiritual wisdom that is above the world, into the world, he makes a bond. What is a Kenyan? A Kenyan means that I'm attached to something in the sense of a possession. Kenyan means a possession. I have a relationship with that thing that it belongs to me. The world was divorced from God, in a sense. That means he was above the world, and the world is separate. Comes along Abraham to do what? To acquire the world for Hashem. That means to take that which is above and beyond, transcends the world, and make a connection with the world itself. That, that the world becomes, as it were, his Kenyan. How does that happen? By a human being who takes every part of his body, just like the Hibar Am means, in the creation of heaven and earth entirely, that's expressed in a human body that has the corresponding parts, that correspond, each part corresponds to one part of the world. And what does he do with that? He expresses the, the divine, transcendent essence in every aspect of physicality, through his body and through every part of the world. That is called makes an acquisition of heaven and earth to Hashem. That is the unique, that's his unique contribution. Let's try, just to, be, uh, to take this one step further, try to answer the questions we began with. First of all, did he teach monotheism? Nonsense. Nonsense. Shem and were teaching monotheism, right? They were very, very holy people. Shem was a prophet. So they knew all about Hashem. What they did not teach, what Shem and Ebed did not teach, what they did not teach, is that spirituality, that elevated, rarefied, transcendent spirituality, is relevant and has to be expressed in physicality. They didn't teach mitzvahs. What Abraham did, what he was, what he was unique about his path was, is that, that, that godly wisdom that is above the world, if you want to put it in modern terms, let me paint you a, a broad, perhaps slightly exaggerated picture. May I do that? Shem and Abraham were sitting on the Himalayan mountaintops. They were in the Nepal, Nepalese Himalayas, right? That's where they were, Tibet maybe someplace. They were running this center of Eastern spiritual thinking. Valid, valid material, they were teaching Torah. But it was in the rarefied atmosphere of the mountains. How were they doing it? In a way detached from the world. They were detached from physicality, they were celibate and ascetic, in the sense of disciplining the bodies. They didn't sleep in that yeshiva. 
They didn't sleep in that yeshiva. The body was not allowed to rest. The body was not given any pleasure or rest or sensual. It was disciplined entirely. And the spirit was separated from the body by the means of disciplining the body. And they taught the divorced spirit. They taught the Torah of the spirit that is divorced from the body. And that is why, listen carefully, that's why the people who built that tower and foisted that philosophy on the world, right? that is why they had no concern and no problem with, these, with the people running that yeshiva. What did it bother them that there were people sitting on some Himalayan mountaintop teaching spirituality? On the contrary, it's wonderful, it's quaint, it's, 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 uh, <coughs> it's enlightening, it's all sorts of things. As long as you don't threaten me and my practice in the world, you don't tell my body what to do, I don't mind. They were threatened by Avraham Abini because he came and said, you've got to live this way with your body. This is what you have to do. You have to behave this way. You have to use your fingers and toes and your tongue and your every part of your body you have to use this way. That they couldn't, that they couldn't stand. That they were ridiculed for. Do you understand? But that there was a rarefied spiritual teacher someplace talking about spiritual, incredible spiritual insights. Right? What's wrong with that? That was not Avram Ibn's path and that was not threat to them. And you can readily see the answers to the, the other questions too. Why did, why did he need to study in that yeshiva before he went to Laban's house? Let's try to understand this a bit more deeply. You see, the feature of that spiritual wisdom that Shem and Eva were teaching, the feature of that type of mountaintop isolation meditation type wisdom, when it's not connected to the body, is exactly that. It's divorced from the body. Think about this for a moment. Let's explore this. Let's explore this. You know that in all spiritual systems throughout the world, throughout the world, there's a notion that to be spiritual, you have to deny the body. Deny the body. You have to negate and deny and abjure the body to become a celibate and ascetic. Wherever you look, whether it's Christianity, the way to the spirit is to become a monk or a nun and live in a celibate, ascetic environment. No alcohol, minimal food, minimal speech, minimal rest, minimal... Muslims are not allowed to own alcohol. Do you know that? Muslims. Not allowed to own alcohol, not drink. Own. I know that because when I got to Israel the first year, I had some very expensive whiskey just before Pesach. And I didn't want to pour out the whiskey, so I went to the I went to Abu Ghosh. I lived next to Abu Ghosh, and I tried to sell my whiskey to an Arab in Abu Ghosh. I knew he wasn't allowed to drink it, so I thought I'll sell him the whiskey, and I made him an offer. But an offer he couldn't refuse. I'll sell him the whiskey, and I'll come and pay him back more to buy back my own whiskey off of Pesach. What's the problem? We say for them, you're not allowed to drink it. The Arab told me he can't buy it from. He's not allowed to own alcohol. I had to go to a Christian moshav where they tried to convert me to Christianity. I had to pour out the whiskey. I had to pour out the whiskey. I mean. <coughs> This is how I know. So, the, you'll find that in every system throughout the world, they understand that to become spiritual, the body's a conflict, a contradiction. In Christianity, there's a tremendous tension, tremendous tension between activities of the body and marital involvement, for example, and the spirit. Tremendous conflict. In many systems, there's a, con- there's a concept here. We have it in Torah. When, when Esau was blessed, when Esau was blessed, the blessing he got, Yaakov got the blessing, The blessing from you for you is the dew of heaven, meaning the spiritual world above you, and the fat of the land. The combination of the two. Esau's blessing, Esau's blessing was, For you, the dew of heaven is above. Al, like Elyon, above. You want to become spiritual, you have to leave the physical behind. Because if you try to take the physical up to the spiritual, it will sully and contaminate and soil the spiritual. You have to, and the way you do that is you discipline physicality. You become, yes, you, you beat the body into a submission. You do not allow it to speak. When the animal and the bodily is suppressed, then you can fly spiritually. And you see that per- pervasive pathway throughout the world. Right, throughout the world. In Judaism, even in Eastern systems that don't teach that you have to be a monk or a nun or celibate, they often engage in temporary phases where they 
right? Where they, where they enter that zone in order to, to learn that message. <coughs> That's not necessarily invalid, by the way. Even in Judaism, we have temporary expressions of this in order to... Yeah, a Nazir, for example. A Nazir. A Nazir is a person who has to renounce wine for a certain period of time. Right? In order to teach himself to make an adjustment, pull himself to one extreme, even though Judaism is the middle path. But he sometimes, the Rambam says, like a tree that's growing crooked, sometimes you have to tie it down crooked in the opposite direction for a while before you release it and then it grows straight. And when this Nazi doesn't drink wine, yes, what's most significant is that when he comes at the end of the Nazirus and he drinks wine again, he has to bring a sacrifice to atone for the fact that there was a time during which he didn't drink wine. That's how Judaism sees involved with the physical, that if you renounce the physical, you have to atone for that, because the physical is your vehicle to condition to spirituality. Of course, sometimes one needs abstention in order to, to discipline, but that's the concept. And therefore, these two are locked in a death struggle, the body and the neshama, the body and the spirit, and therefore the one must be renounced and suppressed in order to express the other. Now, when Yaakov went to Lavan's house, what, what was happening was like this. Let's start, try and get a, a handle on this. You know who Lavan was? Lavan was a swindler and a cheat and a liar, but he was one of the most high spiritual individuals who ever lived. Do you know that? Lavan was one of the greatest spiritual giants who ever lived. I, I, yeah. Just give you two indications of that. First of all, you know he was the same soul as Bilam. You know that Bilam was a reincarnation of Lavan. Yes? And Bilam, we know, was the highest prophet, right? In many levels, he was as high as Moses and Moshe Rabbein. <coughs> How do we know that he was the same Neshama? Is because when Bilam came to curse the Jewish people, riding on his donkey, right? You remember it says, Vatilchatz regel Bilam and Akir. She pushed the leg, Bilam's leg, against the wall. Yes? The donkey. So the Mephoshim asked, what wall? What's so significant that the donkey pushed his leg against the wall when he was riding? The wall was the wall of the Matseva, the, the um, monument that they built. That, that, that Lovon previously had built as a testimony to the fact that he had made a treaty with Yaakov that he would never pass this point of this monument in order to harm Yaakov. And Yaakov undertook that he would never pass it in order to harm, to harm Lovon. Lovon had built that monument, declared that he would never pass it in order to harm Yaakov. That was the monument. When Bilam, who was an incarnation, another version of Lovon, was on his way to pass that monument to harm Yaakov, the donkey reminded him, you are about to break your oath. That's the connection. It's so one of the sources from which we know, explicit source from which we know, that Lavon and Bilam were the same individual. Incidentally, the word Lavon in Kabbalistic thinking means from the highest spiritual world. Lavon is not just a name, meaning white. An interesting name for a, for a, for a black god. Huh? It's called Lavon. It has many meanings. But one of the meanings is, Kabbalistically, Lavon always means the highest world. can't go into detail now. Just give you an example. Lavon always means, you know, when a Sefer Torah is written, it's written black on white. But the white is the background. The white's where you begin. The white's the source. The black is the specific and the detail manifest against a white background. Lavan always means certain Kabbalistic worlds. Lavan is the highest, highest of the world. You know, Lavan white contains all the colors. White's the unification of all the colors. The place before differentiation begins. Talking about an incredibly high place. So Lavan was this amazing spiritual giant, and in the world he was the lowest individual you can imagine. He was an absolute cheat and a liar. In fact, he was a complete inveterate liar. He couldn't say truth. What does this mean? What does it mean? You see, a person who lives in the world of the spirit, where it's not connected to the body, that's what's called a lie. What is a lie? A lie is that inside me, in the, in, the inner wisdom is a particular version, but what's expressed, yes, what I express in the world is the opposite. What's a lie? A lie is something where, what's the nature of a shekin? Sheker, the word sheker is the opposite of the word kesher, you know. 
Kesha means to join. To join things. Where the source and its expression are correctly joined. One, one loyally expresses the other. Sheker is where that's broken. Yes? Where I have something inside, but what's expressed is the opposite. The ultimate version of a lie is when I live one thing internally and my life in the external <coughs> is a contradiction to that. Right? It is not expressed. My body does not express what my mind is. That's who Lovin was. He was not, it didn't happen to be a liar. He was a liar because, because the world of spirit that's not expressed loyally in action. Yet that's what a lie looks like. That's who Lovin was. And therefore, when Yaakov Avinu went to live in the house of Lovin, who was a liar and a cheat, the kind of yeshiva he needed to go to was not Avram Avinu's yeshiva. He needed to go to yeshiva where the kind of Torah they taught was the Torah that's separated from physicality. Do you understand? What they were teaching in Lovin's, Lovin's house, in, in what they were teaching in, in Sheva Eber's yeshiva, was what he needed for Lovin's house. Shem and Eber's yeshiva was a yeshiva where you learned the Torah that transcends the world, is divorced from the world, is separated from the world, and the world's got nothing to do with it. The world has to be, the physical and finite world has to be suppressed, ignored. It's a contradiction. When you want to know how to deal with individuals who live that way, that's the yeshiva you go to. Do you understand? When he learned in Avram Avinu's yeshiva, he learned how the worlds are connected. He learned how the one is a perfect expression of the other. The world of the spirit flows into the world of the physical. What's in the mind is expressed in the fingertips. What's in the mind and the, and the soul is expressed on the tip of the tongue. The one expresses the other perfectly. That won't help you in Lovon's house. When you go to Lovon's house, you need to know how you can be a cheater and a liar. How a person can separate those things. Yes? And therefore, he went to the yeshiva where they teach the kedusha of that separation. Is this clear? Yes. Why did Rivka go and ask her <coughs> question from shame? Why did she not ask from Avram Avinu? Because when she was dealing with a contradiction between good and bad, when the child she felt she was carrying tried to express herself one way in one circumstance and the opposite of physicality and sensuality and earthiness in the other, so then she was dealing with conflict. When you go to explore the concept of conflict between spirit and body, yes, Yaakov and Esau, that type of conflict, where you go is the yeshiva of shame. You don't go to Avram Avinu for that. Avram Avinu teaches the harmony between these two. Do you understand? The expert in the disharmony between them is the non-Jewish, as it were, teaching, yes, or the, uh, of shame and Eber. That's where you go. And therefore, she went for that particular prophecy which is represented by Shem. That's the concept. And therefore, what we're studying and what we, what we learned this evening is that there are two kinds of Torah. There are two kinds of Torah. There was the Torah that already existed in the world, the Torah of separation, the Torah of being a celibate and an ascetic and a monk. Incidentally, incidentally you know, there are two ways to separate the body from the neshama. It's an important thing to know. There are two ways to separate the body from the soul. There's one where the body becomes a servant, becomes a servant by being disciplined and by being beaten and being suppressed. You become completely, completely celibate, completely ascetic, completely, right? You, you, the body's allowed only just to survive. And by disciplining it that way in such a severe fashion, the mind can expand. And there's another way. To allow the mind to expand and reach the highest realms of prophetic insight and Torah, genuine Torah, and the body, allow the body to be a complete animal. Complete animal. Completely detached. Got ir- ir- irrelevant. And of course, you understand, it's Bilam who teaches that most intensely. Do you know the contradiction in Bilam? The contradiction in Lovon we discussed. The contradiction in Bilam is that he was the highest prophet who ever lived. You know, in many levels he was as high as Moshe. In one way he was higher than Moses. In one way he was higher than Moshe Rabbein. He's compared in many writings to, to, to Avram Avin, to Abraham himself. The founder of the whole process. Prophetically he was as high as, as Moshe Rabbein. And in the physical world he was so despicably, unbelievably, inexpressibly loved that I'm almost... Some of, the, things he, some, some of the, the kinds of things that he did physically, one can't even talk about. Just as an example, yeah, and only to say the minimum, 
the, the, our sources say that he married his donkey. He married his donkey. That was his physical wife. How we know from the Psukim, because, and you notice, incidentally, not only, it's virtually explicit in the Psukim, and as the Gemara may explain, but not only that, you know that all the greats of spiritual history, Avram of you know, Abraham rode a donkey, but it was a male donkey. The Mashiach will come riding a white donkey. You know, donkey always represents the material. The world of earthy physicality. Chamor in Hebrew means chomer. Chamor in Hebrew means a donkey. The literal construction of the word is chomer, the material. What does it mean to ride a donkey? What does it mean to ride a donkey? Who cares what the Mashiach rides? Who cares what you... Are you concerned that he comes on a white donkey, the Mashiach? Let him come. I don't mind. He'll give a first class seat on the Concord. It's fine. He can come. He has to ride a white donkey. means controlling a purification of the material. What does riding a white donkey mean? It means being in control of the purified version, the white version of Chomer of material. Do you understand? That's what it means. To be dominating where the physical world is a pure vehicle. Yes, for his, for his progress. That's what it is. Bilam doesn't ride a donkey. A Chamor. He rides an Aton, a female donkey. Female donkey. And the matter says exactly what he... That question becomes this. How can a person reach a level of prophecy as high as Moshe and descend to bestiality on the physical level? How does that work? And the answer is... It's a Torah of separation of divorce. The higher level can be in the highest worlds. The body is a completely separate entity. Completely separate entity. Either it's route to, to, to become completely, have complete animal, like in the case of Bilam, or in the case of Shem and Aver, it was an ascetic discipline of the body, where the body is disciplined carefully in the ultimate act of precious, of separation from the body, so that the mind can be free. Either, either of these two versions are possible, but they are versions of separation, divorce between the two worlds. That is, that is what it is. Let's just spend a minute or two and take it one drop further. Can, can we do that? Sure. Yes? I hope you're not going anywhere. I, hope. I presume and I hope. Although Jewishly, uh, we, we do not abstain from alcohol and other connections to the physical, nevertheless, there's times when it's more appropriate and times when it's less appropriate. Now, the, incidentally, while we're on that subject, do you know what the meaning of wine is? Do you know what wine means? Do you know what wine means? You know, in the question of celibacy or asceticism, leaving the world, alcohol plays a major part. It's not only food and pleasure, alcohol is a specific thing. Do you know in Judaism, we take alcohol at every moment of transition from physical to spiritual? You know, we're so used to it, seeing, a, a Jew is so used to seeing a cup of wine raised at Kiddush and at virtually every moment like that, that we don't even think into it. But what is the meaning of this? How does the non-Jewish world in general respond to the question of alcohol? In one massive segment of the world's population, it is a massive problem. A massive problem. You know, I read a medical article not so long ago, in which they made an assessment of a certain inner-city hospital in Boston, and they found that 50% of admissions to that hospital were alcohol-related. 50% of people in that hospital were there as some function of alcohol, either accident or so, trauma or, or some other de- medical, surgical. Or there's abstinence, like I mentioned before, because this is a, right, even in Buddhism, incidentally, they're not abstinent completely, but there's, there's the injunction not to be intemperate, not to uh, misuse intoxicants in any, in any fashion. But in many systems, it's a complete denial and, depri- and deprivation. In Judaism, we specifically take wine when we connect physical to spiritual. You know that? Here is a marriage. Two people are getting married. Two, two human beings are getting married. In that action of taking two physical bodies and standing under the chuppah and moving into the thing called marriage, 
where this relationship will be sanctified in what we call Kiddushin, right? We take a cup of wine. When we sanctify the weak in what we call Kiddush, we take a cup of wine. Where the weak moves up into the rarefied spiritual, the mundane, earthy weak, moves into the rarefied spirituality of Shabbos, we take a cup of wine. Bris Miller, circumcision, the, the, the essential demonstration of this thing, we take a cup of wine. Any time that we take the physical and move it up to the spiritual, we take wine. Why is that? You know that wine is a remarkable substance. The Kabbalists teach that wine is a small chink, avenue of access into the spiritual world. Wine, you know, wine adds up to 70, yayin. The same as the word for sod, the secret or hidden world. The, the expression of the sages is, nichlas yayin yatsasod, when the wine goes in, the secret comes out. It means on a deep level, the secrets are revealed. Right? Wine is an avenue of access. Wine is paradoxical. Wine is a substance, al- alcohol in general, but wine specifically. You know, the, the, our sources say that in the next world, you'll be drinking the wine that is guarded in its grapes. You know that? The wine that is guarded and sealed in its grapes from the time of creation. What does it mean? That substance that releases the spiritual wisdom, that makes it manifest. Wine is such a substance that it's paradoxical. If you take too much of it, you become not, yet, not become released from the physical, entirely released from the physical, part of the scenery, part of the physical world. But if you use wine correctly, it has a liberating, it's able to open consciousness. A remarkable thing. It has to be used correctly. Uh, the, all, all the physical world is dangerous. You used correctly as a vehicle, disciplined vehicle. So we take wine <coughs> at times when wine is a r- remarkable thing. That class of substances, unlike all physical things, obeys the rules of the spiritual, not the rules of the physical. You know that the rules of the physical are time makes them worse. All things get worse with time in the physical world. In the spiritual world, things get better with time, like wisdom. Wisdom amplifies and increases with age if it's nurtured correctly. But physical things like the body, no matter how the body's nurtured, gets worse with time. Always. So physical things get worse with time, degenerate, decompose. Spiritual things get better with time. All physical things get worse with time, except wine. Wine is a remarkable class of substances, part of remarkable class, that those things get better with time. Remarkable. And therefore, that's the symbol, that's the key, you know? that's, the, that's the clue, if you like. And we take wine at, that, at those moments of, of, of transition from physical to spiritual. You may ask a question that some people ask, which is Havdalah. Havdalah Havdala is when we make the separation between Shabbos and the week, Saturday night, when we go from the Kedusha, the spirituality, down into physicality, we take a cup of wine. Isn't that problematic? But I'm not going to go into detail. I'll just indicate there are no exceptions in the spiritual world, of course. Well, the meaning of Havdalah is when we go down from the Shabbos to the week, that is called a Yerida Tzorah in Kabbalistic thinking. It's a descent for the purpose of ascent. The reason you're going down out of Shabbos is to engage a week of physicality so that you can work and develop so the next Shabbos can be higher than the previous one was. This is a process of elevation. How do we do it? By going down into the mundane. That's exactly what a Jew is. On the contrary, that demonstrates our message perhaps even more sharply. We take wine when we leave the physical, use it as a springboard and leap into the spiritual. But we take a cup of wine when we go from the spiritual down into the physical and engage it as a vehicle, right? Do you understand? That is an expression of Jewish condition. That's what we do. Not only because we're going to use it and, and get higher than we were before, but the very act of engaging the spiritual, the very act of engaging the physical in Jewish thinking, it means to be investing it with condition. Wine is as appropriate there as it is at the moment of separation. Do you, do you understand? This is, this is what's happening. Let me add one more detail, perhaps, and we'll close with that. <coughs> yes, you have patience for a couple of minutes? Yes, sure. Let me add one more detail that I hope will express it even 
even more clearly. You know, you know on Shabbos, on Shabbat, we have a prayer called Nishmas. Nishmat Kol Chai, right? You say that on Shabbat and Yom Tov on a Chag. Every, in fact, you have to say it. You have to say it then. It's not, even if you least, least not that every, any of you would ever dream of coming late on Shabbos morning to Shul. But if it happens through very rare, exceptional, unavoidable circumstances and you have to leave out part of the Pesukah de Zimra, you cannot leave out Nishmas. Right? It's one of the essential things you have to say. Now, Nishmas contains a remarkable... A remarkable... Uh, <coughs> Nishmas contains a remarkable apparent contradiction. Let me read it to you. Right? Within two lines, you have such a contradiction that it's, it's striking. Listen to what it says. Nishmas kol chai, right? The soul of all that, that's alive. Tevarech es will bless your name, Hashem Elokeinu, etc. It's a very beautiful, extremely poetic expression. And then it says like this. Listen to this. Ilufino male shira kayam. If our mouth was filled with song like the sea, ulshenenu rina kahamo in golov, and our, our tongue could express song like the waves of the ocean, vesifsoisenu shevach kamer chaverake, and our lips could express your praise like the breadth of the heavens, veinenu meiris kashemesh kere, and our eyes were light like the sun and the moon, etc. Yadenu plusos kenishre shemaim, our hands were spread like eagles' wings. And our legs were fleet as deer. In, in other words, yeah, in, in plain non-Shakespearean English, if we extended to the full expanse of the universe, if we had the powers of all the physical world at our disposal, and we used that to relate to you, Hashem, how far would we get? We would not manage to praise you. We wouldn't be able to relate to you. To bless your name. Listen to this. Loosely translated, it means we wouldn't manage a, a, a thousandth of a thousandth of a thousandth of a thousandth of a millionth of a ten thousandth of a hundred thousandth of a millionth right, of what is appropriate, and I probably yeah, you know, minimized it there, of, of what is the appropriate praise that needs to be said to you. Let's listen again. If we were in control of the full physical universe, if we had the broadest expanse of all the powers in the world, in the universe at our command, we wouldn't be able to begin to relate to you with the tiniest fraction of what is relevant relative to your greatness. Does that make sense? Of course, Hashem is infinite. Of course, no matter how, I don't care how big the universe is. Let, Let it be any size you like. It's nothing compared to Him. And therefore, if you expand it to the expanse of the universe... How, how much you, you begin to relate to Hashem's greatness is irrelevant, and that's what it says, correct? Now listen, two lines later it says like this, Alkane, therefore, 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 the limbs that you have given in our body, these physical things that we spoke about a moment before, the breath in our nostrils, and the tongue in our mouths, the very parts of the body we spoke about a moment before. They will praise you and relate to you and sing your praises. And yeah, one, minute, one, one minute ago you said the job's impossible. You hear this contradiction? Let, let me speak it out clearly. If I had the full expanse of the physical universe at my control, how much would I be able to talk about you, Hashem? Nothing. Irrelevant. A millionth of a millionth of a millionth of a nothing. Therefore, therefore, the limbs and organs that you've given me, these very finite physical things that I complained about 
a moment before as being irrelevant, will do what? They'll do the job. They'll, they'll speak your greatness and your praise. And so, no, no, what's going on? In one line you say that your body's totally inadequate, unable to do it. The next line you say, but because of this, whatever this means, I'll be able to do the job. It's a contradiction, no? Now, there are wonderful answers to this. There are wonderful the answers I think they credited Chaim with saying a typically Jewish answer, a very beautiful Jewish answer, which is not the line I want to take this evening, but I'll mention it. He said like this, if I had all these powers, I would be completely inadequate. The job's impossible. Right? But I'll do it anyway. Yeah. This is a Jewish answer. Who cares if it's impossible? We'll do it anyway. Yeah. The Jewish approach is, like the Bala Musa say, ask not if the thing is possible, ask only if it's necessary. If it's necessary, you do it. What's, nothing's possible in the first place anyway. It's not you who does anything in the first place. This is a Jewish approach to life. I've got an impossible job facing me. Let's get that clear. It's clarified. Okay? My body, with all the expanse of the universe, completely impossible. I can't even begin the job. Therefore, I'll do it. I'll do the job. That's a very remarkable Jewish idea. Remar- On the contrary, it's because it's impossible that I'll be able to do it. It's because I don't act anyway. It's you. That I can do anything. Okay, that's not the answer I want to give this evening, although it's worth pondering. The answer I'd like to share with you this evening is this. Listen carefully. Nishmas Kolchai, this prayer, is a unique prayer. You know what it is? Nishmat Kolchai, the neshama of everything that's alive. The soul of everything that lives. Which soul are we talking about? Which soul are we talking about? This prayer is said on Shabbat. This is the prayer of the neshama Yisaira. This is the prayer of the extra soul that invests a Jew on Shabbos. Let's study this amazing idea. You know, on Shabbat you get an extra soul. What's called Neshama Yaseira, extra soul. It does not mean another soul. You don't become schizoid on Shabbos. Okay? That's not what it means. Some people think they can eat twice as much on Shabbos because it is two Neshamas. So, like, you know, you can eat more. You're not going to put on weight because the divider between the two. That doesn't mean that. You don't become a schizoid. Neshama Yaseira means more Neshama. It doesn't mean another one. It means more Neshama. On Shabbos, there's more Neshama. What does that mean? What does it mean? Listen carefully. It's an amazing thing. Neshama Yaseira means that on Shabbos the Neshama invests the body more. What do you mean more Neshama? How can you have more soul? It means your body is invested more deeply with Neshama. Neshama Yaseira means that on Shabbos what happens is on Shabbat when you move up into the realm of spirituality the body moves up. The Jewish, a Jewish body. Do you know why it's true that on Shabbos you should eat more, enjoy more pleasures? Do you know how we celebrate Shabbos? One of the things we do on Shabbos is engage in more Physical pleasure. Better food, more food. What does that got to do with spirituality? And the Jewish answer is everything. Because on Sh- Shabbos is a day where more physicality can take spirituality without being dangerous. Do you understand? Again, you need a delicate balance of food, wine, the pleasures of the body. Very delicate balance. Because too much of those, the body ceases to be a vehicle and starts taking over. The non-Jewish world is quite correct about that. It's very dangerous. This Jewish program of using the body as a disciplined vehicle so that the rider gets to his destination and the vehicle is sanctified is a dangerous business. And therefore you do use the body and you do give it its pleasure, but it has to be disciplined and careful. On Shabbos, when there's more than soul, there can be more body. Are we getting somewhere? When the Shabbos is more potent, it can invest the body more deeply. You can eat more on Shabbos and not be brought down. That's the... The the non-Jewish conception would be the holier you get, the less of the body has to get must be allowed to be around. May be allowed to be around. The Jewish concept is the holier you get, the more body you can express, and it's safe. The Shoma Yaseira means, uh, uh, am I making some progress? The Shoma Yaseira means that on Shabbos, 
when the Neshama goes more deeply into the body, then those finite limbs and organs can say praises that were previously impossible. That's the point. Under normal circumstances, living in a human body, body, meat, flesh, tissue, a body, that contains its own excrement as low as you can imagine. That is animal. That's going to relate to Hashem? Impossible. But that Jewish idea, that's not impossible. But on Shabbos, the beauty is, the concept is on Shabbos, that day that connects the finite with the transfinite world. On that day, the body that previously was limited in certain dimensions to a certain animal level, it's not that the soul distracts itself on Shabbos. On Shabbos, it's the body itself that can be raised to a level. And therefore, Nishmas Kolchai is the bracha, is the neshama, is the tefillah, the prayer of the neshama Yisera, and that's what it is. Do you know what it means that we say a Jew has a different soul than a non-Jew? Do you know what it means? It means are we bigoted fanatics who believe that we better? Is that what our chosenness means? It's got nothing to do with that. A Jewish soul being different than a non-Jewish soul means that the body, the soul of a Jew goes more into his body. It doesn't mean he's got a, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean he's got a better soul or a higher soul. It means that the Neshama invests the body in a different way. It's... It, yeah, the, the, another form of soul that wants to express its kedusha, its sanctity, its spirituality, has to divorce from the body. The nature of a Jewish... This is why certain non-Jewish pathways are not valid for Jews. Not because they're not good. They can be wonderful, they can be fine, they can even generate all sorts of levels of understanding and spirituality. They've got nothing to do with the Jew. The Jewish pathway is, is to connect the spiritual and physical. The Jewish pathway is to put his, 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 his neshama into his body and achieve kedusha that way. That's the uniqueness. That's the whole uniqueness of the Jewish path. You want to be a child of Avram Avinu. To go sit on a mountaintop and meditate only and not engage the body has got nothing to do with Judaism. I'm not saying it's a, it's a bad idea. You might get all sorts of benefits from doing such a thing at a certain times. But what's unique about being a Jew is that you bring the mountaintop down into the plains and the valleys. That the hands and feet, yes, that is specifically each mitzvah activates a part of the body. That's exactly what we are. It's not <coughs> like they're asking the question, Petty, irrelevant, why do you have to hold this with your hand and sit in the circle? On the contrary, it's activating every detail of the body, corresponding to every detail of the physical. That is what the Jewish path is. That's what Avraham Avinu means. That's why his name means the 248 organs of the body and corresponding to the 248 parts of the world for which the world was created. That's what it means. And a Jewish soul goes into the body in a different way. Do you know... Uh, one of the remarkable things is, you know, every morning we make blessings. And three things that often cause people problems are the three blessings. Yeah, particular three blessings. Thanks for not making me a woman. Shalai Asanisha. Thanks for not making me a woman. A man says that. Thanks for not making me a slave. And thanks for not making me a non-Jew. These are all problematic. Especially the first and last. Who says thanks for not making me a woman? What's wrong with being a woman? Probably a woman. Okay, we have to talk about that. Not what's wrong with being a woman, but why we make that blessing. It's not tonight's subject. You have to remind, we'll talk about it again. And a woman doesn't make a corresponding blessing, thanks for not making me a man. A woman makes the blessing thanking Hashem for creating her as she is. That means I already reflect your rotsen. I already look. A man doesn't look like he's supposed to look. A man thanks on the contrary. You know what it means, thanks for not making me a woman? It means thank you for not making me with her perfections. That means, thank you for giving me the deficiencies that caused me to have more mitzvahs, to bring Kedusha into more... I have more work to do. I have more mitzvahs. A woman has less mitzvahs. I have more mitzvahs and I thank for that. She thanks for already being perfect in those areas that do not need the work of perfection. We have to talk about that in more detail. Why thanks for not making me a slave? Because a slave has less mitzvahs. A slave has less mitzvahs. And therefore, I thank for being given the privilege of more work that I have to do. Why does it mean thanks for not making me a non-Jew? The, 
What does that mean? But the specific question I want to ask this evening is, how could I have been a non-Jew? How could I be? What do you mean, thank you for not making me a non-Jew? Well, how could I have been a non-Jew? I'm a Jew. Let me try and make this a bit more dramatically clear. Do you make a blessing in the morning, thanks Hashem for not making me a banana? Bokhat Hashem, shaloi asani banana. Why not? Why not? You know why? Because you couldn't have been a banana. Is this clear? You might have been a monkey, but other than being a banana. So, and, so therefore, yeah? You don't make a blessing for not making me things that you aren't. Thanks for not making me a peach and a banana and a pear and a lump of wood. And a, the lot of things I'm happy I'm not. Do you hear the problem? The answer is you could have been a nudge. You could have been a nudge. You could have been a slave. And you could have been a woman. If you're a man. Because the differences are not differences in essence. A slave is not a difference in essence. He is different in situation. A woman is a different expression of the Shama in the body. You have to explain what, explain what that means. Do you know what it means for not making me a non-Jew? You could have been the same soul as you are, in a sense, and been a non-Jew. What, what does it mean? That the soul that you were given comes into your body in a different way. It comes into the body in a different way. There's a different investing of the body. You were born as a person in the world whose role is to bring Kedusha into the body in a unique fashion. Not you're more capable of spirituality. On the contrary. Shaiva ever were teaching a higher Torah, if anything, than Avraham Avinu. In a certain way. They were reaching certain heights of spirituality that there's no problem with the heights of spirituality. Lavan was there and Bilam was there. Bilam was as high as Moshe Rabbeinu was spiritually. That's not what's unique about us. Is this point coming across? Am I getting somewhere? What's unique about us isn't that we are high spiritually. What's unique about us is that we are lower in bringing spirituality into the physical. That's what's unique about us. That we invest the vehicle of the body with a certain condition that is unique to the Jewish path. And therefore, the battle's not to be fought on the level of we better, or we're not worse, are we more spiritual, less spiritual? Can you achieve more sitting on a mountaintop and meditating, higher wisdom, low? That's, got, that's not the issue. Abraham did not come to the world to teach that. He did not come to teach the world about Hashem, who is Elion, who transcends the world. He came to teach the world about a Kael Elion, who's above the world, that brings that down into the world. You know what the word Yaakov means? Yud Akev. Putting the Yud, the ten emanations, the highest level of spirituality, into the heel, into the Akev. That's what Yaakov means, Yud Akev. What's this discussion of the heel? What's so special about the heel? Because that's where a Jew is. That, that's what makes you unique. Not what's in your head. What's in your head can be the same as a non-Jew. That's not unique. <coughs> when Esau was killed, when Esau died, you know, he was beheaded. Chushim ben Dan killed him, Yehuda, Chushim, both of them together, whatever happened. Esau was beheaded. His head rolled into the Machpelah and was buried there. And his body was buried outside. Esau the father of those non-Jews, who teach the separation between spirit and body. Do you understand what happens? His head is buried in the Machpelah together with Adam, together with Avram, together with Yitzhak, together with Yaakov. His head is buried in the same place. That's his head. But his body is nowhere near because of complete separation. Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, their heads and bodies are buried together. Man and wife. Man and wife. Same idea. Head and body. Deeply connected. They're buried in the Machpelah. Machpelah means doubling. Machpelah. Kefal in Hebrew means double. Machpelah means a place of unity of spirit and physical. The higher world meets this. The Gemara says the Machpelah is two caves. One cave in another, one cave above another. Machpelah. In which city is the Machpelah? What does Hebron mean in Hebrew? Joining together. Chibur. Joining together. Where this world meets the next. That's what Hebron is. That is what Judaism is. Where's Asaph? His head is there, his body's outside. 
Is this the message today? So what we learned this evening, I hope, as an introduction to the subject of what we call precious. Precious means asceticism, celibacy, or, or asceticism, separation from the physical. Can I leave you with a thought? In any book of Jewish character development, take the Silesi Sharim, books, Muslim, books that teach you how to develop, you'll find a chapter on precious, precious separation. Separation from the physical. Separation, did you hear what I just said? Separation from the physical. A lengthy chapter on how you separate yourself from physicality. Does that bother you? It should. We just spent the whole evening saying that we don't separate from the physical. So how come? You have the problem? But the answer is this. Yeah. Of course we separate from the physical. We separate entirely from the physical for its own sake. That's what you never engage. You never get into the body for the sake of the body. That's as low as you can get. We get into the body for the sake of the neshama. That's what we do. Precious means, after have to understand this clearly, precious means, precious means to separate from the body as body. To separate from the body for the sake of body. That you have to lift out of. Engaging the body, yeah. When you eat a meal, what does it mean in practice? You eat a meal, you know why? You eat a meal, you eat enough and you enjoy it. Why? So that you can have the sustenance, the nourishment, the well-being, the sense of well-being to get out there and do your mitzvahs. That's why you eat a meal. Yeah? If you eat a meal just for the sake of the feel-good, of the taste... That is completely unacceptable. From that you be perish. From that you separate. Eat food because it's good, only because it tastes good, for the pleasure, the physical pleasure. What does that have to do with the spirit? That's not going to elevate you. That's going to bring the spirit down. But when you eat food and enjoy it and engage the spirit, the physicality of the world, and drink the wine, and engage the body in all that it must be engaged in, and you do that to bring spirituality to the world, whether it's in marriage, which is bringing a new soul to the world, whether it's food, which is bringing your neshama into the world, connecting it with your body, so you can produce what you have to produce spiritually, bring a neshama into the world that way, so then of course you engage physicality. But we certainly separate from physicality where the physicality is an end in itself. Is this distinction clear? That is, that is exactly what we do. We do engage the, the body, of course. We don't separate from that. We engage it. And of course what happens is you elevate the world. When you eat food, you elevate the food. Because when the food is absorbed into a body that then goes and produces mitzvahs, learns Torah, produces mitzvahs, changes the world, elevates the world, the food has become part of that spirituality, the body and the food. Every chicken prays, you know that? Every chicken dovens to be eaten by a tzaddik. Every chicken prays that it should be eaten by a righteous individual. Why? Because then it is absorbed. What happens then? The inorganic world is absorbed into the plant world. The plant world is absorbed into the animal world. The animal world is eaten by... It's the only reason you're allowed to eat meat. Eating meat is a very problematic thing. Not ideal at all. Wasn't allowed before the flood. Will not be allowed again in the future. But when you eat meat, what it's doing is elevating the whole chain, the whole process of the physical through the plant, through the animal, into you. For what purpose? To produce the spirit. So that whole process. But if a chicken is eaten by a, by a not, not a righteous individual, that's a disaster. The disaster is the, chicken, the chicken's worst nightmare. Is to be eaten by, yes, at best by somebody who who doesn't do anything, just kills the chicken and eats it, or worse, somebody who eats it and does negative things, that he's become transmuted into negative energy, the terrible thing. And therefore, every chicken dubbins, every carrot longs, every carrot longs to be eaten by, ultimately by a tzaddik, by somebody who's going to transform it, transmute it, elevate it, along with his body, become the material of his body and translate that into spirituality. That's what it is. And therefore, that's the concept. Avram Avinu came to the world to teach something unique, not to teach Torah to the world, to teach the Torah that is our Torah, which brings Torah into mitzvah, as they must be. 
Now the Gemara says that every time you learn Torah, it has to be almanas lasos in order to perform. If you don't intend to perform an action from what you learn, then you don't have Torah either, and the Torah is not Torah. Ah, you learned it and you become wiser, that's not called Torah. The Gemara says, anybody who learns Torah and says, I have Torah but not mitzvahs, I'm not interested in mitzvahs, I'm interested in Torah. Says the Gemara, he doesn't have Torah either. Why? He learned the Torah, he has all the wisdom. That's not Torah. Torah is a spiritual wisdom that wants to be, seeks to be, desires to be applied and expressed in the world of the body and the physical. When it comes into the physical and it's expressed that way, that's called Torah. A person doesn't intend to bring it into physicality. There's no connection made to the physical, to the mitzvahs. To those tiny details of fingernails and toenails and feet and shoelaces. As well as the bigger ones. That kind of Torah is not a Torah either. Because what's unique, where we stand on one side of the world and all the rest stands on the other, is not in terms of spiritual wisdom. That's not our subject. But where we stand, different is that we are children of Avram Avinu. What he brings to the world is this unique facet of Torah that is wisdom connected to the world. And with this, of course, you can understand why when Yaakov meets Esav, he says, Im Lavan Garti, I lived with Lavan, after coming back from the base Lavan. He says, Im Lavan Garti, and what does Rashi say? Im Lavan Garti, Vitariag Mitzvah Shomarti. I lived with Lavan, and I kept 613 mitzvahs. The word Garti is the same letters as 613. It means, I lived with Lovan, I kept 613 mitzvahs. And the question is, what exactly did he mean? Did he mean, I lived with Lovan, a liar, and a swindler, and a cheater, and an evil individual, and I remained positive, I remained spiritual? What did he mean exactly? I'm still an Orthodox Jew? That's not what he means. What he means is, I lived with Lovan, a person who lives in the higher world, and is disconnected from the world, and I kept mitzvahs there. That's what it means. In Lovan, Garti. I was with Lovan, who's not connected, He's totally disconnected from the world. His actions here are completely inconsistent. And with Lavan, Garti. With Lavan, 613. With him in that, he who lives in that higher world, disconnected from the lower world, I lived there in that environment and I connected it. That is the, that is the meaning. Okay, we can stop it for now.